6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 60 through 62. Let's pick up chapter 60 of Isaiah, verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Now, you may recognize that verse as written by Handel. Most of you probably know that Handel wrote most of the book of Isaiah. And, of course, I'm being flippant. Arise, shine, for thy light has come. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. Ooh. And I suspect this refers to Amos 8.11, where there will be a famine on the world, but not of food, but of the word of God. That kind of darkness is what I think is going on here. And gross darkness, the peoples, and the, the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. That's obviously subsequent. This darkness also could be an allusion to one of the plagues of Egypt. Those of you that are diligent students of prophecy will take the ten plagues of Egypt and compare those with the, the um, trumpets and bowls and all that of the book of Revelation. The ten plagues of Egypt, if you're going to study those, you might notice that there are nine of them, three under the rod of Aaron, three with no rod at all, and then three under the rod of Moses. You'll also notice that there's a warning, warning, then no warning. Warning, warning, and there's patterns of the first nine. Very designed. The tenth one, of course, is the firstborn. And there's an irony there because God talks about Israel as being his firstborn. And he's delivering his firstborn with the death of the firstborn in Egypt. There's a lot going on there, mystically, that you might want to study and get the tapes on Exodus or what have you. But also, if you look at that pattern, you'll see echoes, if you will, of uh, the trumpets and the bowls in Revelation uh, 8 and 9 and, and 15 and 16 and so on. But this darkness was one of those things, and there, there may be an analogy. I'll let you run with that one. And the nations shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see. They all gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy son shall come from far, and thy daughter shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because of the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee, and the forces of the nation shall come unto thee. And the word forces really may be translated riches of the sea, and so forth. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. They, they, uh, they all from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord." Notice something that's missing in verse 6. We have gold and incense. Frankincense, right. What's missing? Myrrh. Do you know why? Because his death at this time will be behind him. This is kingdom stuff we're talking about. At his first coming, the Magi brought him gold, myrrh, and frankincense. Okay? It's a prophet, priest, and king situation. Prophet in terms of his death 
king in terms of the gold, priest in terms of frankincense. It was a priestly ointment. In the kingdom period, they will bring him frankincense, he's still our high priest, and gold because he is our king. They won't bring a myrrh because that speaks of embalming, that speaks of death, and that's so it's interesting. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered unto thee. Not a big deal, but the, the second son of Ishmael was Kedar, and Kedar settled in a place that you and I would call Kuwait. Nebuchadnezzar and his father, Nebuchadnezzar, were from the Sealands, which later became known as Kuwait. Saddam Hussein attributes his lineage to the second son of Ishmael, son of Kedar. The tribe of Kedar also brought you another luminary of the past, a guy by the name of Muhammad, which brought you Islam. I don't know what you do with that information. I just throw it out to keep things confused. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly like a cloud and that like the doves to their windows? Surely the coasts shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from afar, their silver and gold with them unto the name of the Lord thy God and to the Holy One of Israel because he hath glorified me. There again, Isaiah always uses the duet. You see, it's the Lord thy God and you know, the, the Holy One of Israel. Are those two titles the same guy or are they two guys? Take your choice. <laughs> And who's bringing them? The ships of Tarshish. It's not conclusive, and we can go too far with this sort of thing, but there are some reasons to believe that Tarshish was Britain. Many scholars argue this, but I believe from the story of Jonah that Tarshish was not Crete or Spain. It was much further away. We do know, archaeologically, that they did enjoy worldwide trade from the British Isles in the 1500 B.C. time period. When Jonah was trying to get as far away as he could from Nineveh, he took a ship to Tarshish. So on that basis and some other bases that are not conclusive but suggestive, I think Tarshish may indeed refer. It was a source of tin, and that's what, Brittany, that's what Britannica means. So to the extent are the young lions of Tarshish, Vesicle 38, an illusion, vague though it may be, of the United States, possible. I wouldn't oversell it. That's interesting. But here it's interesting that the ships of Tarshish shall bring thy sons from afar. And I think that's pretty fascinating today. When every, every, every able-bodied, wide-bodied jet is bringing the sons of Israel from afar, from, from Russia, from Ethiopia, and so forth. That it becomes a major immigration problem. And isn't it interesting that Israel's desire for some loan guarantees is to absorb the immigration, and we're against that? We have interesting policies. We give the Arabs tens of billions of dollars without interfering with their domestic politics, but we say to Israel, we won't guarantee your loans unless you declare part of your country off-limits to Jews. Interesting. The term of West Bank is a term of their enemies. Always remember that. The biblical term is Judea and Samaria. The West Bank is part of the propaganda machine that has promoted a number of myths that are widespread in the press. Hal Lindsey's doing his next book on the Middle East myth, I think it's going to have a title, something like the Middle East Myths in the Nuclear Age. Most of what you've heard about the PLO and the Palestinians are fraudulent, including Lawrence of Arabia. That's going to be a wonderful... I don't want to steal a house thunder. There's all kinds of things he's going to unveil. That's uh, in his next book. Let's move on. Verse 10, And the sons of the foreigners shall build up thy walls, and their king shall minister unto thee. And in my wrath I smote thee, and in my favor... 
have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually, they shall not be shut day or night. Men may bring unto thee the wealth, actually, of the nations, and that their kings may be brought. For the, na for the nation and kingdom that shall not serve thee shall perish, yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Now you could put in a marginal note for yourself to explore on your own Matthew 25 and the sheep and goat judgment here, if you like. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, the box together to beautify the place of thy sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet, not your feet, my feet, glorious. Sons also of those who are afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee, and all they that uh, despise thee um, shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet. That's an interesting phrase, because that fulfills the dreams in Genesis 37 or 8, whatever it was, of Joseph. Remember the dreams he had that he shared with his older brothers? <laughs> All these sheaves bowed down to my sheaf, remember? Prophetic, of course, of many things, but certainly an allusion here to Isaiah 60, verse 14. And all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Yes, I am a Zionist, but in the biblical sense. Whereas thou hast been forgiven, excuse me, forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. You know, you read these passages like this, and it's, it's uh, on the one hand, pretty straightforward kingdom stuff. On the other hand, you stand back and you're amused at the doctrines that some uh, elements of the so-called Christian church are selling that it got us through with Israel, that the promises on her to her were forfeited and are fall on the church. That's heresy. The more you read the Old Testament and the New, the more you realize that that's a fraud that is being perpetrated on certain elements of the body of Christ. The name Israel appears 73 times in the New Testament, and 72 of those is clearly ethnic national Israel. Thou shalt also suck the milk of the nations. Thou shalt suck the breast of kings, and thou shalt know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior, thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Wow. Now, this idea of sucking the milk may sound strange to our ears, but it actually is a classic, eloquent expression referring simply as a way of alluding to providing for someone. We speak in our English Bible of God Almighty. You've all heard that term, I take it, right? That's translated from one of the names of God called El Shaddai, which is God the Almighty, but the tone of it means Almighty in the sense that He can provide for all our needs. Not Almighty in a military sense, Almighty in the provisional sense. The word El Shaddai actually means breast. It's as if we're nursing at his breast. And that may sound a little bizarre in our use of idioms. But that's what the term El Shaddai is tended to connote. God the Almighty Provider. Okay? So when we use God Almighty, we're really alluding to his title El Shaddai. And that's sort of the flavor of the passage here. Thou shalt suck the milk of the nations, thou shalt suck the breast of kings, thou shalt know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. For bronze I will bring gold, and for iron I will bring silver, and for wood, bronze, and for stones, iron. I will also make thy officers peace and thine exactors righteousness. 
Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting or destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call thy walls salvation, and thy gates praise. Pretty straightforward stuff, I guess. Let's pick up verse 19. The sun shall be no more, thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Now, the everlasting light. From here, of course, you can get into a whole study on the Shekinah glory, this strange light, this pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day that uh, is introduced to us in in, uh, we're first conscious of it, at least, in Exodus. It probably was also the element at the Garden of Eden. There's a whole study you can get into. But anyways, the Shekinah glory. No, I won't get into a whole thing on the light. It's interesting, though, that if you compare verse 19 with Revelation 21 and 22, it's very, very analogous to it, where there is no sun by day or moon by night, because who is our light in Revelation 21 and 22? God is. And this verse, chapter, verse 19 of chapter 60 really echoes uh, very clearly Revelation 21 and 22. But another uh, subtlety is the sun and the moon also is an allusion from Revelation chapter 12, where again the sun and the moon are idioms elliptically uh, referring, of course, to Israel. And you can get the tapes and study that. Verse 20. The sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. The Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. The people shall also, uh, also shall be, uh, uh, all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. And the sprout of my planting. The word branches there is not the branch we're used to. And that's just a different word. Anyway, the sprout of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation, and I, the Lord, shall hasten it in his time. So that's chapter 60. Now, we're going to be in Isaiah 61, so we naturally begin at Luke chapter 4. And we'll pick it up at verse 16 of Luke 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now I pause here to notice that there's only one Isaiah. The writer apparently wasn't informed about the uh, new insights of higher criticism. It doesn't tell us whether it was Isaiah 1 or Isaiah 2. It labors under this idea that there was only one Isaiah. And, of course, I'm being facetious. I think I was indebted to Walter, who first pointed out to me that John 12 proves to you from the Scripture that there was one Isaiah, not two, like some pseudo-scholars would have you believe. We've covered this before, but just to highlight it so you don't forget, in John chapter 12... There's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6 and a quote from Isaiah chapter 53. And between those two verses, it says that same Isaiah said again. Delivered to the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And what we'll discover shortly is that the place he turned to happened to be Isaiah 61 verse 1 and 2. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And he's turning to the place that is Isaiah chapter 61, it turns out. 
He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, he, to preach deliverance to the captives, to recover the, to the, and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then I want you to notice at verse 19 it ends with a period. You might want to mark that period. For those of you that mark up your Bible, you might want to put a little circle around that period because that will come be important to you in a minute. Now what Jesus then does is he closes the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's a mouthful. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61. I'm always fascinated by these screwball groups that say, well, Christ never claimed to be God. They didn't read John 8, and they didn't read most of John. Jesus here is claiming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He said so formally in the synagogue. This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Let's pause for a minute. I want to come back to this, so hold your place here. But let's turn to Isaiah chapter 61. And let's read the passage that Jesus was reading from, in effect. Now, make some allowances here for translations. It's almost, it's almost the same. There's a few subtle differences, nothing that material. Chapter 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach the good tidings to the meek he hath sent me to bind up the broken hearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord now do you notice what's after the word Lord there a comma a comma you might want to mark the comma now you say well wait a minute Chuck there was not punctuation in the Greek or the Hebrew that's correct but also, when you read passages like Paul, he doesn't say, I would not have you, ignorant brethren. <laughs> right? Or somebody else says, we are butt flesh. in deep trouble. Yeah, I think you may want to just scratch this tape, Doug. <laughs> the parsing of sentences is important, and it's inferred from the grammar. But the main point is, is that this implied comma, after the word Lord, Lord in verse 2, is where Jesus Christ stopped. He read this passage, but he stopped at a comma. Well, what was it that he didn't? One of the interesting things to do, I'm going to do this one of these days when I get some time, I want to write a book, you know, about the, the things that aren't there. There's all kinds of things in Scripture that are fascinating because of what's omitted. What Christ omitted was a phrase. And is that phrase important to you and I? Because what Jesus Christ did not read was the following words, and the day of vengeance of our God. Hey, friends, 
if he stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and read this whole passage on the day of vengeance of our God and then said, hand the books in, by the way, this day <laughs> is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. That ushers in Joel 2. That ushers in the day of the Lord. I mean, it's over. You and I would not be in the family of God. Follow me? That's an important issue. That comma is a pause. It doesn't mean he's not going to do this. He is not doing it yet. He stopped at the comma, closed the book, and said, This day is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. What's implied by that? The day is coming when he's going to say, Hey, by the way, guys, <laughs> now the rest of it is. Among other things, it proves that Jesus was a dispensationalist, in a sense of speaking. In other words, there are periods of time in which God is doing certain things. Jesus Christ, in his ministry, was sent to accomplish and did accomplish a certain group of things. There are other things that he will accomplish on another occasion. We are fond of our concept of Christ as our kinsman redeemer. We talk a lot about that. There's a concept introduced in the Torah that undergirds many of the laws in Israel of the role and, and obligations and mission of what's called a goel, the kinsman redeemer. If you were in trouble financially and you in those cultures indentured yourself as a servant, sold yourself for five, six years or whatever, there were procedures by which your next of kin could redeem you. He was your kinsman redeemer. If you sold your land, now you couldn't actually give fee title to it because it was, it was given to your tribe. So that's why genealogy is so important. But what you could do is, in effect, sell it in the sense of selling the rights to it for a period of time. You and I would call that, in today's vocabulary, a lease. But if you sold your lease or your birthright or whatever, the procedures were invoked so that your kinsman redeemer could, under certain conditions, if he was able and if he chose to, he could redeem your land for you. This is all demonstrated dramatically, beautifully, colorfully in the romantic story of Ruth in the time of the judges. That story is beautiful for many reasons, but it's extremely provocative to us as students of prophecy because it models the operation of all these laws, the Leverite marriage, where if there was no uh, descendants from a deceased husband, that there was the obligation, or the, it, could be, it could be set up, so the obligation of the next of kin was to raise children also to the wife, to the heir, and so forth. So the Leverite marriage is there, the redemption of the land, and the, so forth. And of course, Boaz in that story is cast in the role of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Naomi, of course, is cast in the role of Israel because by the act of redemption of Boaz, Naomi is returned to her lands. But also by that same act of redemption, Ruth, a Gentile bride of Boaz, is a type of the church. And it's a very fascinating study. And the more you study the subtle details of that, the more you'll be discover that it's deliberate. The Holy Spirit designed the story. Not that it didn't actually happen. Don't misunderstand me. It did actually happen. But it's specifically crafted as presented to us to fulfill all kinds of insights. You will not understand Revelation 4 and 5 unless you really understand the book of Ruth. But the point is, you and I have all been taught a lot I hope, <laughs> about the role of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. There's another thing uh, 
that I might mention, and I may have mentioned this before, bear with me. Every time you find one of these rules or ordinances or issues in the Bible, I want you to remember that nothing is there because of quaint traditions or what have you. They're all there by supernatural engineering. We have 66 books written by 40 authors that are an integrated message system. Nothing trivial. Every number, every place name, every detail there by design. When you encounter some weird procedure or some strange ordinance in Leviticus or wherever, recognize that somehow that thing, whatever it is that's troubling you, points to Jesus Christ. You say, well, gee, that's then try and try it on. Let me give you one of my favorite examples is the concept of the city of refuge. Moses is told by the Lord, when you, get in the, when you finally get into the land, I want you to pick out six cities, three east of the Jordan, three west of the Jordan, six cities of refuge. And the laws were set up so that if you were guilty of the inadvertent death of somebody, somebody that you were responsible through negligence or what have you of having been killed, a condition that you and I would use the term manslaughter, you knew that the guy's next of kin would be coming after you. His event, he would be the avenger of blood, and he would, under the traditions of that time, be entitled to slay you for having slayed his kin. Because in anticipation of that, what you did was to flee to a city of refuge. When you got there, you convinced the city fathers that you were, in fact, guilty at worst of manslaughter, not premeditated murder, and you were given sanctuary. The law said that the avenger of blood could not touch you while you were in the city of refuge. If you left, you were fair game. But if you were in that city, you were protected by the procedures at that time. Now this all continued until another event occurred. This continued until the high priest died. That's over not in the city of refuge, that's in Jerusalem. But when the high priest died, that triggered a number of things, not the least of which was those that were in asylum and the city, you know, had sanctuary in the city of refuge were free to go and the avenger of blood could not touch them. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.